Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Tom Garrity. Tom is the CEO and founder of Psychological Safety. With a diverse background that encompasses scientific research, technology, and leadership roles, Tom brings a wealth of information and knowledge and expertise to the table. Throughout his career, Tom has held influential positions such as CTO and CIO, which have fueled his passions in DevOps, psychological safety, and generative leadership, where he focuses on organizational transformation through safety culture. Drawing from his experiences collaborating with teams spanning various domains, including technology, healthcare, aviation, and government, he empowers organizations to cultivate psychological safety and unleash their true potential. We're excited to have Tom with us today as we discuss psychological safety and creating a thriving workforce. Tom, welcome to our show. Thanks, Graham. It's super good to be here. It's really nice to have you here. You know, I was reading about you. I know you started your career as what you coined an experimentalist uh, with Syngenta, and you described that being one of your all-time favorite job titles, and you progressed from experiments with plants and greenhouses and field trials at the University of Nottingham, where you managed research studies in bioscience, now being a little bit more firmly involved in some software and product development. But it seems like at your core, you're drawn in when there are simply different problems to be solved. Tell us a little bit about that part of your personality, being drawn into things that need to be solved and looking for ways into and through them. Oh, that's a good question. My my first job after after uni, I moved down South Equals near to London to a place called Gelatil in Berkshire and for a job that was, yeah, my first job title was experimentalist. And I was in weed science. It sounds like a teen movie or something. But then that was, yeah, it was my coolest job title. It's the one that I sort of, I've kind of held onto. I've kind of like stuck with me through my career. I still identify as an experimentalist. And I kind of think that's, still now so we'll, we'll we'll talk about some ways to foster psychological safety what psychological safety looks like in the workplace and experimenting or the safety to experiment the yes. ability to learn from the work that we do the mistakes we make the successes we have that's all part of being an experimentalist and turning everything into an experiment so we can learn from everything we do whether it's a success whether it's a failure whether it's just daily work and you know that's that's fundamental. That's like the foundation of probably what I do on a day-to-day basis. That's really good. What is, just personally, what's your biggest personal life lesson around psychological safety? I think if we, if we frame that like as a catalyst, like the catalyst for me getting into psychological safety was sort of the, the turning point for when I realized this is an important thing that I need to address and work with somehow. That was back probably around 14, 15 years ago now, I, I took a job as a senior infrastructure engineer, so a sort of operations and networks uh, tech role for a large European firm. And my boss at the time, it was a big open plan office. Everyone would sit in their little cubicles in a big open plan office, you know, those gray cubicles where everyone's put in little boxes. Right. And the boss had his glass box okay. in the corner. Yeah, exactly. The glass castle. And and every now and then would come out 
come out of his glass castle and rip someone to shreds for some minor infraction, some misdemeanor, some mistake, something they got wrong, something they said. He once came out and stormed. He, he stormed out and ripped someone apart for laughing. You could hear someone laughing, and he and he and he ripped into them for that. But what he was doing and what he created, so he created an environment of fear, a culture of fear in that department, and he did that for good intent. Like he wasn't an evil person mm. and he wasn't skeletal he wanted to do the right thing for the organization he wanted to do the right thing for the business and he thought that was the best way right. to have as he perceived incredibly high standards of performance and behavior and quality what it actually resulted in a far decreased level of performance and quality and execution because no one no one felt safe to try anything to say anything to ask anything if we did anything then everyone had to plan the heck out of everything, you know, you yeah. create huge documents of planning because if something did go wrong, at least you could say, well, look, I planned all this. I, yeah. I did all this planning. And so everything became a CYA exercise, a cover your ass exercise. You're just living and in fear the whole time. You're just living in fear the whole time. Right. And, yeah. and, and that, that it really impacted the business. It, the business really suffered as a result. Yeah. Competitors were, were, were you know, screaming ahead with innovations. Mm. We were getting out of date even the safest things like just patching and updating became sort of a scary, unsafe thing to do. And that was the place where I realized mm -hmm. this is the bad way to do things. This is that end of the spectrum. This is the, 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 the way to achieve poor results. I didn't really know at that time what, what the opposite end of that spectrum was. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what that meant. You know, I hadn't yet come across the term psychological safety. But over the years, as I progressed in management roles and leadership roles, I became aware of the term psychological safety. And that was my light bulb moment. That was, ah, this thing I've been trying to do, the opposite of that culture of fear that I was in, mm -hmm. that's that's psychological safety. That's what yeah. I'm trying to do. That's really good. And that's become your mission. That's, you know, making yeah. the world of work a safer, higher performing, more inclusive, equitable place. That the the opposite of that spectrum you're talking about right now, the one of fear and one of everybody plays narrow, everybody plays afraid, and you're you're just basically kind of put in a straitjacket where creativity and all those other things don't get a chance. So let's let's start out as we working today. What what is psychological safety and what is a psychologically safe workspace? Yeah, so it's it's, it's another good question because there is some misconception, sometimes misinterpretations of of what psychological safety is around the world in different workplaces. We lean on Amy Edmondson's now somewhat canonical definition of psychological safety, that it is a belief that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. It is the belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. Mm. And so it's that belief that we can take interpersonal risks, which do involve speaking up, and they, but they might not, they're not necessarily restricted to only speaking, there might be might be other interpersonal risks, but that's that's what psychological safety is. It's it's the it's the it's the ability, the belief that we're in this group, it is safe to take a risk, to ask for help, to admit a mistake, to raise a concern, to point out a problem, or suggest an improvement, or those all those sort of things in that in that environment. Yeah, there is a misconception around that sometimes in the workplace. It's sometimes perceived as a wellness thing a sort of fluffy hre kind of thing right. that managers don't need to really concern themselves with it's a, oh that's a mental health thing that, yeah. that hr can deal with and we can do a workshop in it and then we're we tick that box we've got to live it and breathe it 
Yeah, you know what's really cool about what you're saying. You know, oftentimes with business, we're we're so concerned about the bottom line, the bottom dollar, and the success is measured by the numbers at the end of the day or the end of the year. You know, then well, we were successful because we hit this, we hit this goal, or and we think that whatever it takes, whatever leadership style is going to get us there is going to be doesn't really matter as long as we get there. And what you're saying is, if we kind of reverse that a wee bit. And rather than looking at more the transactional pieces of the business side, but we look at weaving in a real understanding of and a sensitivity to and a and a maybe kind of a heart towards the personal piece of it. How do we bring people, the best of people out? How do we bring their creativity, their ideas, their risk-taking? How do we bring all of these things out of somebody? And what you're saying is the cornerstone for that on which everything is going to be built is going to be creating a safe place. It sounds like much like, you know, the work environment in my mind is, it's just another system. It's like a family system. You know, when you talk about safety and all that, you know, it sets the foundation for in terms of growth and potential being reached, it's no different than, you know, growth that can take place in the healthiest family system. It's the same thing. Why can't we replicate that? And can we maybe intentionally come at it and trying to create kind of a very similar system where growth and all this potential that lies therein just naturally evolves organically because it's so safe and it can't help but grow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and I like that you brought up the family point as well because inevitably we talk about psychological safety a lot as a workplace phenomena, as uh, as something as something that drives workplace performance, and it absolutely does. We psychological safety drives workplace performance through innovation, improved innovation, more and better ideas, servicing and the ability to execute on them. It increases work, increases organizational performance through quality, improving right. quality of the things, the services we deliver and the things we make, increases safety because ultimately we can't be safe unless we're psychologically safe because if someone sees a risk or sees a danger or sees a, an opportunity to fix a faulty machine or something that's dangerous, but doesn't speak up because they don't feel safe right. to speak up, you know, that results in harm, that results in often, and it can result in death, as we've seen through aviation and other industries. But if we take it back to the family and other groups, you know, we, babies, babies and small children feel psychologically safe, right? They say what they want to say, they they do what they want to do, they take into personal risks. They've They've not yet experienced the, or they've not yet learned that sometimes it can be unsafe. That's right. Relationally to say things or do things or act in a certain way. Yeah. So we learn, we sort of learn this absence of psychological safety right. through our family life, our school life, and and then our career and further on. Yeah, so it's something, it's often something we have to unlearn. We have to, we have to right. sort of fix old habits and change the system. That's right. You know, when we talk about the the, the development, you know, our, our natural development, you're talking about babies, our, our, our first developmental milestone is about trust versus mistrust. That's our very first developmental milestone, our foundation. So it's about yeah. safety from right from the get-go. And then from there, it's about kind of forming an identity. Who are we as a family? And and what does this family do? And then then we get to get busy. We get to become industrious and we get to, you know, to because it's safe, we have an identity and here we go. And that's what you're talking about, the same thing. Yeah about taking that into a workplace. When you come in and you are working with companies and maybe this is, you know, we're talking about psychological safety and what can it allow. And I'm going to talk about that in, with you in just a few more minutes. But when you come in and assess a work environment, what are some of the common red flags you see that make for or might be indicating 
a work environment that may not be as safe as it needs to be? Yeah, good question. And this is, it's almost a tricky one to answer because it's very, very contextual. We work with healthcare teams, we work with aviation organizations, we work with tech and marketing and 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 all sorts of like manufacturing and everything else. Very different contexts, people working in very different environments. But there are, yeah, there are certainly some common themes that we see across these different environments. Of course, the first thing you can do is ask people, do you feel psychologically safe in your team in in your groups and and of course you'll get you'll get some useful information by doing that but of course mm-hmm. there is also the the irony that, that if people don't right. feel very psychologically safe they're not going to tell the truth <laughs> right exactly right and that's what makes it hard and so mm-hmm. we have to we have to look for proxies we have to look for indicators mm. my my original background is in ecology and I was talking to someone the about uh, indicator species so in, in ecology we, we we go around and we might be surveying a, a mountainside or more and we look for indicator species and this this grass indicator the soil is acidic and this lichen indicates the air quality is good and so we're kind of doing the same thing in organizations right we're looking for indicators that okay. indicate certain things about the climate in the organization That's and those things analogy. can be yeah great yeah it's, it's really useful oh, i could i could go on i could ecology the yeah. way ecology and 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 organizational the whole dynamics climate of everything. Later, I think. yeah 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 i that's that's my that's my super geek area yeah um, but so so the, <laughs> so there's some of the indicators in the work where you can be out in the in, in, in a moor and looking at these things and the climate there and what's growing and what's not what's acidic and what's in the workforce what are some of the what are some of the indicators that you're seeing there that are good measures there's a number of things so uh, this is certainly not an exhaustive list right but there's uh-huh. there are things like for example, sporadic performance reviews or you know annual performance reviews where performance is not mentioned or not addressed at any other time apart from in this performance review. And that performance re- review sort of determines someone's future in the organization, someone's salary and everything else. That's, that's an anti-pattern to psychological safety. We tend to see that sort of behavior in organizations that don't tend to foster psychological safety. We also see things like an over-reliance on metrics uh, a need or a desire to to apply numbers to everything, particularly numbers, applying numbers to esoteric or intangible things, because in those sorts of organizations, it's there's a perception that numbers that we need hard facts and hard data in order to make decisions, right. and in fact, the conversations with people, the sentiment or what people feel about things, is less important. That's a bit fluffy, and so. We we see sort of that, and we and, and then we try to we we try to change the system around that really, to, yeah. to to help yeah to help sort of focus on the qualitative rather than the quantitative. You know, as you talk about it that way, I'm aware that in your work you draw on the fields of safety science, human factors, ergonomics, and organizational psychology as as kind of a kind of a theoretical, it sounds like, perspective you work from. And it's, I think that's a brilliant way to work. And if you were to say that all of these fields have at their core a common human trait or need that maybe we all share, what have you learned that core need to be relationally? Yeah, and I think, I mean, foundationally, these fields all address the the ability of us to succeed in the thing that we're trying to do and do it safely. Mm-hmm. And that might be that might be ergonomics. There's there's ergonomics and there's human factors and and safety science and mm-hmm. 
underlying all of this, underlying all of these realms, is the degree of psychological safety, is the foundation of psychological safety. We cannot be honest about the way we work and the way we do things and, and the, the risk we, we face or the problems that we're facing or the ideas that we're having if we don't if we don't feel psychologically safe. Mm-hmm. And so we draw on many, many fields, but one of those fields that we particularly particularly draw on is aviation and the idea of CRM, cockpit resource management or crew resource management. Have you have you come across CRM in aviation? I've just I've just heard about it just briefly, but tell us a little bit okay. more if you would, please. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. Please. So I think this is this is really interesting and and is one of those concepts that I think traverses industries or it should yeah. traverse industries, yeah. but it doesn't yet. And I think okay. it will do. And this is partly what we're trying to do. CRM is a is a, essentially a safety program in aviation. And it emerged from the in the 1970s and 1980s, where it was realized that the vast majority, in fact, probably all plane crashes and, and aviation disasters were caused. Mm. at least in part or or had a primary cause at the, in, in their sort of root causes uh, a, a lack of communication or poor communication in the cockpit or between the cockpit and air traffic control or between the uh, other crew members and so it recognized that technological improvements technological innovations and system improvements could only take us so far in improving safety and outcomes right so crm began as a training program to essentially, amongst many other things, improve psychological safety in the cockpit and between crew members. And it had a dramatic effect on safety in the airlines because since since big high-profile disasters like Tenerife in 1977, the the accident rate or the the safety of commercial aviation is dramatically improved air crashes are incredibly rare now and that is largely thanks to aviation sorry to crm which is foundationally a psychologically safe practice a a practice of putting psychological safety into practice the behaviors and practices and systems therein and and that's that's something that that many other industries could learn from the practices and, and and adoption of crm in the aviation industry has dramatically changed the face of the industry. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig-time, make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com slash B-H-T, and then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. That's app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. That sounds like a really hopeful you know, finding here that if we can do it here and we can look at the numbers improve, mm. 
that's a very hopeful future that you're envisioning here. I also like what you're emphasizing. You know, we can go so far with technology and all the newest things, but there's always going to exist the human factor piece, the relational piece. And in that, it's almost like the technology is only going to be as good as a human factor piece is there to complement it and direct some things that are really truly essential. And again, we're talking about the safety piece and trust. What have you found in your work and your experiences as, as much as you've been around and the things you've been doing? What have you learned about the challenge of trust within relationships and what makes it so challenging to be vulnerable with one another? So, yeah. And what we like to do is actually split trust into the two types of trust, effective trust and cognitive trust. So we we can trust that someone is capable of doing a thing, that someone has the, the capacity, the skills, the knowledge to do whatever we're asking them to do or whatever they're expected to do. And we can also trust that they will do the right thing, that they'll do the right thing by us, that they'll do the morally right thing or the ethically, ethically right thing. Mm-hmm. And those two, like we need both. But So if we think about management in this respect, you know, we talk about trust, but it sometimes gets hard to action, hard to implement, if you like. And I think because we don't always separate it into these two different ideas. And so we we need, in our manager, in our leader, we, or in peers, in colleagues as well, we need to feel like they are not only capable of, of doing the thing that we're asking them to do, but they'll do the right thing. That They won't undermine our own eff- efforts or they won't take credit for our outcomes or, mm-hmm. or, or our ideas. And and that we and that we're all pulling in the same direction, and that when they say something, they mean it, and 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 if they make a mistake, then they'll admit, they'll admit it to us. That's both those elements of trust are really important. One on its own is is not right. sufficient. Right. You know, it's nece- necessary but not sufficient. Yeah. So we can look at mechanisms to build both those types of trust in in groups. Yeah, that's really good. So let's let's segue just a wee bit then and talk about mm. some of the strategies that when you come into, let's say, a broken work environment, they're calling you in to come in and you've assessed some things. What are some of the common strategies that you find yourself and, and your colleagues working with to help a company create a more safe work environment? What are you addressing? So we we kind of address it. We have this like triad of, of behaviors, practices, and systems. And at a at a at a ground level, at the at the sharp end of work, if you like, of the people doing the job, we can talk about behaviors. These are these are the things that we do all day, every day, things like admitting mistakes, active listening, effective communication, nonviolent communication, praising people, thanking people, framing work in different ways, celebrating failure, celebrating success. All these mm-hmm. sort of behaviors and b- including things like body language. Body language gets a little bit tricky, partic- particularly when we're we're getting getting into a sort of cultural or cross-cultural teams, teams comprising neurodiverse folks. In fact, all teams comprise neurodiverse folks, really. The the way the different people prefer to mm-hmm. maintain eye contact or or, or you right. know use their body language will be different for everyone. Everyone else. But so we, we we focus on behaviors that we can improve in the team and we can try out. And again, we're working people, we're working with folks to, you know, we always frame things as, as an experiment. Try this thing. Yeah. If it works, don't worry about it. We'll try right. something else. Right. If you if you're not if you don't feel you're great at it, first of all, that's fine. 
keep on going, keep practicing. So that's, that's behaviors. And then we look at practices as well. So the way I always say it is that practices have a name. So practices are things like the Andon Chord from, from the Toyota Carter. The Andon Chord is part of the Toyota production system that is a physical, it's a real thing that allows people to pull a chord. It's actually not a chord anymore, but it used to be a chord. That's why it's called the Andon Chord. Pull a chord and effectively stop the production line and ask for help or raise a concern. Say, this machine isn't working. There's a defect. There's a safety issue. There's improvement to make. And the Andon Chord is an explicit mechanism that allows team members to speak up. Mm. And it might not, again, it might not be verbally, it might be written, it might be in some yeah. other format, but it allows you to speak up. Yeah. Yes. And that's just one practice. And there are loads of others, like like different kinds of retrospectives or futurespectives. There's things like lean coffee, there's empathy mapping, and all sorts of other practices that have these names that we can put to work and we can apply in our own contexts. And then oh, we have good. systems, mm-hmm. right? So the systems... We, we we don't we don't operate we don't work in a vacuum we when we're at work when we're working with our teams we are affected by by the systems around us the the metrics and the incentives that we're that we're exposed to or, or or measured by even the you know the size of the office the the whether we're in person or remote how often do we meet what's the size of the team what work are we expected to do what's the volume of work what so deadlines and other things do we have? What's the systems of work around us and how do they affect the way we work? And fundamentally, they are going to, in, in small ways, some more than others, affect, and it's our behavior that then affects the psychological safety of other people on the team. So framing it that way and addressing the different components is, is really powerful and obviously super context-specific. Really good. You know, I'm thinking about... In my work, oftentimes I'll I'll do some parenting, you know, training with folks and and to meet with the parents and talk about their parenting style, whether it's you know authoritative or authoritarian or laissez-faire, and you know what their upbringing was, what kind of parenting they received, because we more times than not do what we know, and that's kind of how we were treated. We thought, you know, hey, look at me, I'm okay, right? So must must have worked good enough, and so we do what we know. And and I'm curious in 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 likening the family system to a work environment system, how do you work with those in the parenting, you know, positions, supervisors, managers, directors, in helping to bring their awareness to what their style is? I'm thinking about the guy that would come out of the office and just rip people apart, even for laughing or making it unsafe, how you would bring to his attention, you know, his parenting or his leadership style. And, and also not just that, but, what are the needs of the kids in the system? What are the needs of the professionals in the system that are under him? So his style and their needs, how do you address that? Because that's a that's where you wear a couple of pairs of kid gloves because it's a it's yeah. a it's a vulnerable area for the leaders to be addressed on these things. How do you do that? Yeah, so it's and it's like that's super hard, right? Because we're changing yeah. but 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 again, we're we're going back to the systems, we're going back to the the motivations and the systems that drive our behaviors. And so we've got to make some of those explicit. We've got to, first of all, establish why someone is behaving in a certain way. And they've learned that behavior, right? And you just, you said we we do what we know. And of course, part of our challenge across the workplace is that we are, through our career, we're usually exposed to, in our earlier careers, we're usually exposed to managers who are equally early in their careers, yes. who are yet to become really competent managers. And so in a really annoying ironic way we learn management from poor managers yeah and they're not bad people 
No, they're just, they just cutting their teeth had a lot of experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that. We, we've we've got to sort of re-engineer a lot of that conditioning, and in a strange way, well, not, not in a strange way, but it, it in an almost ironic way, we we need to address the fears of those managers. What are they afraid of? They're afraid often of missing their targets, having some sort of huge security breach, or 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 maybe mm-hmm. if it's if it's in healthcare, they're afraid of. A patient dying or, or some right. sort of other scandal or, or, or if they're in aviation they're afraid of a plane falling out of the sky what are they afraid of what are they trying to address and fix and prevent and we often take it right back to basics and this is why we use a lot of examples from things like aviation and other industries because there are stories like that using stories like chernobyl using stories like the tenerife disaster using stories like the Nagasaki train crash or fukushima mm-hmm. make it is a safe way to talk about behaviors and their resultant effects on behavior on outcomes, disasters in this case. They make that a safe way to talk about without sort of pointing the finger at a manager and saying, look, you're doing this and you're you're harming people right. by doing so. They're going to come to that. They're going to come to the realization or sort of think about better ways they can do things themselves. No one wants to be told what to do. We want to come up with the ideas for improving ourselves, and that's the much more powerful way to do it. Well, what I like that you're saying here is you're giving permission and gently leading them into a discovery of maybe why you might lead the way you do. And what you're saying there is those that are maybe creating maybe unknowingly psychologically unsafe workplaces, and they create fear in those below them that they're trying to they're actually functioning out of fear themselves. You know, what yeah. if as the manager, what if as a director, I make a mistake or I don't monitor something at this lower level here and I'm responsible for it. I'm going to, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to be scolded. I'm going to be punished. All the things that happen in our families. Right. Yeah. And they're, yeah. and they're, they're, they're functioning out of fear too. It kind of trickles down, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely trickles down. They're, they are completely functioning out of, out of fear. And one of the downsides, one of the things we have to recorrect or, or, or correct is, is that, for a, in some contexts, for a short period only, leading by fear actually works. Mm-hmm. It does work for a short period. And I've seen this before where you've got a manager who's gone from one role to another role, particularly in different organizations, for, for a short period, and they've led through fear, they've created a culture of fear, they've had some success. Yeah. But then after they've left, or, you know, they haven't seen the damage that they've caused or the long term impact of. What of those sorts of practices and behaviors. Right. So they learn, of course, they learn that that works. And so <laughs> we've got to show, okay, you can achieve some success on a short-term basis mm-hmm. through through fear. People will, will you know, work, people will burn out, people will burn themselves out through fear. But obviously that's not a route to long-term success. Yeah, that's really But good. if we don't hang around for long enough, we won't see it. That's really good. Give us a story of a company that, you know, give us the name, but, you know, an organization you came in to and they're saying, hey, we need some help. There's some things here that we think we could be doing better, but we don't quite know what we don't know about why it's not happening. And can you come yeah. in and assess some things and strategize with us? Where did, what did you walk into and what did you, what did, what did they experience once you walked out of their work with you? Yeah. So there's, 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 there's some really good examples, but I think one, so one that sticks in my mind because it's got a quite a clear connection yeah is is a sales team so i was i was contacted by a pharmaceutical company uh, well by, by a manager in a pharmaceutical company who had what they 
felt was a dysfunctional sales team. They were they were competing with each other in un, unhealthy ways. They were stealing sales of each other. They had a very high turnover of of staff, very high. People were were coming in, staying for a short while, burning out, and there was some other very mm, antagonistic and 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 certainly not inclusive behaviors. Very harmful behaviors occurring in this team. And so I was brought in to help trying to find out what's you know what's going on. What's why are people behaving like this, and how can we how can we improve the behaviors and improve psychological safety? This came out because they did a, a survey about psychological safety and found out that psychological safety was really low in this in this team. But as is so often the case, they hadn't thought about what they might do if they got the news they didn't want to hear. So yeah, so they came to us and. We went in and, and did our discoveries and involved lots of conversations, some sort of surveys and tools like that, but it's more around workshops and conversations. What we found was that there were a lot of a lot of systemic reasons that people were behaving this way. Mm. The teams had very, very high, very ambitious quantitative goals. That's mm. a sales team, right? So they had very high you know, dollar-based goals, they, and crucially, these goals were individual. These were individual goals, not team-based goals. Another challenge was that the opportunities and leads and 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 things like that, and, you know, potential clients and things were presented to them as a finite set. Here's a set of leads. Here's a set of clients. So there was competition for a finite resource. And so, of course, what happened was that with individual goals and competition for a finite resource, people were incentivized right. to compete with each other. That's right. To attempt to steal clients off each other. Yeah. They were incentivized to not certainly not help each other and certainly not help each other if it meant taking your eye off your ball with your client mm-hmm. or potentially making yourself vulnerable and certainly not admitting mistakes or asking for help. Because by doing so, you you were just putting yourself in a position of vulnerability where, where right. a client or a deal could be stolen from you. And so we we changed the systems around this team and we also made sure that they were actually a team because we, teams shouldn't compete with each other. Like there's healthy competition within a team. But but if if we if we scored a football team, right. so I'm talking about you know British football, but but the same applies for American football. If we scored a football team or individuals on a football team by how many goals or touchdowns they scored, yeah. we'd sack half the team after the first game. That's right. Yeah. Even if you know, even and 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 what, what's going to happen in the second game? They're going to fail miserably. So so we need to change the system of work. We need to change the the the, the way they were measured, and so we changed we changed the metrics they used. We changed the incentives they used. We changed the structure of work around them. And they became much higher performing. What was interesting was that the highest previously, the highest performing people on that team had very high scores, you know, metrics of of, of the sales they made. After the these changes we made, those people made fewer sales. They scored lower, but overall the team's outcome was far, far greater. Isn't that great? So much better for the organization and better for the for the team members because they were less, you know, less inclined to burn out, certainly less stressed. On a Sunday night, they're not feeling the the Monday morning dread. They're feeling like, I'm looking forward to going to work t- tomorrow. Isn't that interesting that a lower performance could actually be something that they could embrace and recognize as a much healthier way to be in terms of longevity, in terms of just their own stress levels, in terms of a workplace that's enjoyable to go to, you're looking forward to go to it, rather than having to be on this edge all the time. 
That is so challenging. What a great story. What a great story around that. You know, as we're talking about psychologically work, you know, safe workplaces, is there a possibility of a workplace being too psychologically safe? This is a question that the very, almost the very first moment I started talking about psychological safety, I remember my first talk that I ever did at an IT leader summit in London. Oh, six or seven years ago. And, and someone asked me this question. And it comes up a lot of the time. And there's come up every now and then suggesting or, or, or trying to affirm that teams can be too psychologically safe. Personally, our stance is that no, a team cannot be too psychologically safe. And there's a few, there's a few interesting dynamics to play with here. First of all, we should recognize that performance, team performance, whatever, whatever that looks like in that team, isn't the only reason that we foster psychological safety. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of there's the organizational performance side, but there's also the value-based side. We fundamentally believe that psychological safety is the right thing to do. We we all should feel, it's almost like a human right, we mm-hmm. should all feel like we can go into a workplace and not be afraid to be ourselves, not be afraid to take interpersonal risks. And that's a fundamental value judgment that that, that I believe in. But there's also the point that there is, there's no actual evidence that, that, that suggests that teams can be too psychologically safe. There are some studies that show that where teams become very psychologically safe, other behaviors, maybe that we don't really want, maybe that we deem negative or or, or, or certainly unhelpful, can come to the surface. There are there's some studies that have shown that where teams, where certain groups became very psychologically safe, they, they, they started to say racist things. They started to say, they started to use racist mm. jokes or misogynist jokes mm. because they felt safe to do so. Now, that's not the fault of psychological safety. No. That's that's that we haven't affirmed strong standards of behavior or boundaries. accountability. Yes, that's right. It's boundaries. We haven't yeah. affirmed this, the social contract in the team. Mm-hmm. That's of course that's hard to do, right? It's difficult and it's 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 hard work and it's it's an ongoing piece of work mm-hmm. to to define sort of the behavior standards and expectations within a team. But that is what allows us to foster greater, greater and greater psychological safety, and that drives team performance. It's also worth recognizing, of course, that if we, if we asserted that there was some limit to psychological safety, which we don't really think there is, that there's a limit beyond which you shouldn't go, a, a limit that, that beyond that the team performance begins to suffer, where is that line? You know, if you say to a manager or a leader, oh, build psychological safety, but not too much, right. then... Certain types of managers, those managers that we've maybe already spoken about, may be inclined to use that as an excuse or a way to justify some of those traditional, more conventional, more harmful, more fear-driven behaviors that we've seen in the past, and that's not helpful. Plus, of course, if we do draw that line, if we do draw that limit on psychological safety, we don't want to build it too much, who loses out first? You know, it's not going to be the the well-off, educated English speaking, mm-hmm. neurotypical, able-bodied person in the room. It's going to be the people who are underrepresented. It's going to be the neurodiverse. It's going to be the people of color who suffer first, who lose out first when we try to sort of limit or sort of put some sort of arbitrary right. constraint on psychological safety. And so fundamentally, we don't believe as a we don't believe a team, I don't believe a team can be too psychologically safe. And to go back to CRM the aviation safety program that's the, the the most successful safety program in the world that mankind has ever created at no point in crm training are flight crews ever told to build psychological safety but not too much as much as we can we need to create a safe space right. 
right? What a, what a, what a great uh, context to kind of maybe bring a little bit of a humorous piece around. Hey, don't be too psychologically safe when you got three hundred people in your plane and you guys are trying to communicate <laughs> a safe landing. That's a that's a good uh, yeah, yeah. that's a good reference. You know, I know we're kind of winding down in our time today. I really enjoyed uh, being with you here. Well, I want to think about though, if you if you could leave our listeners with a message that in their workplace, if there was one thing that they could do as a team member, whether you know, regardless of the level that they're at. What could they do today to bring some element of safety to their cohort and their milieu that they're working in? I think it comes back to to being being an experimentalist. We we should reframe work. Work is so often framed as an as an execution problem rather than a learning problem. Right. If we if we reframe work as a way to learn, as a way to do it better next time. Then we're then we're going to get better next time. We're also going to create an environment where it's safer to to take acceptable, well-defined, intelligent risks. It's safer to suggest new ideas of doing something. It's safer to admit mistakes, and it's safer to to it's it. We're creating an environment where we're safer to take interpersonal risks by reframing work as experiments and a way to do it better next time. And that doesn't mean lowering the standards. It doesn't mean that a surgeon is going to get to an operating table and say, well, I might mess this up, but it doesn't matter. No, it means it means we're going to try, we're going to try as hard as damn it to succeed in this at this moment. But we accept that failure is always potentially on the table, even if we're launching a, a, a people to the moon. And if that if failure does happen, or even if or rather if success does happen, we're going to learn from it and we're going to do it better next time. That's yeah. that's the way to not only ex- exceeding performance but improving psychological safety as well what you're holding right there is we're either learn we're either winning or we're learning and yeah. there's no real downside you know to the mistakes we're making if we're trying in our within in our very best ways and in in a well-focused way so that's really good you know tom i would love our listeners after the show today to be able to learn more about you to follow up with you and your work how can they do so oh brilliant yeah so head over to psychsafety.com and over there, so that's our website, and you can find loads and loads of stuff. So we've got loads of downloadable resources on psychological safety. Cool. We've got a community that you can join and get involved with other people who are interested, other enthusiasts. We've got meetups that you can join. We've got a newsletter that you can sign up to. We've got other resources that you can access, practices, workshops, training, stuff that I've forgotten, I'm sure. But there's, there's a ton of stuff there that you can get, get stuck into, psychsafety.com. Very good. Yeah, it's a great site. I really enjoyed being on it, learning about you. And I so enjoyed our time together today. Thanks so much, Tom, for being with us. Thank you, Graham. I've really enjoyed it. That was fantastic. I've enjoyed it as well. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Tom and me today. It's always great to have you with us as well. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.